This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Lisa Ramirez, who is a bi-coastal actor and playwright, acting credits from Berkeley Rep, Atlantic Theater Company. Recently, she was in Water by the Spoonful at San Francisco Playhouse. As a playwright, she did a solo play called Exit Cuckoo about nannies and to the bone. She is the Associate Artistic Director of Oakland Theater Project. Her new play has having a world premiere at the Oakland Theater at Flax in Oakland, and the title of the play is The Book of Sand, A Fairy Tale, and it's inspired by Jorge Luis Borges. It runs November 11th through December 4th with a live stream on November 26th. For more information, you can go to oaklandtheaterproject.org, and theater is spelled T-H-E-A-T-E-R not R-E. Lisa Ramirez, let's talk about the Book of Sand. Uh, this is based, inspired, it says, by Jorge Luis Borges. Is there a particular story? I don't remember. It's been many years. There's a book called The Book of Sand, which is a series of short stories. And this particular story, the play is inspired by the actual story, The Book of Sand. How long is that story? Because they're usually about seven to 10 pages long. That's about right. That's about what it is. So in this story, from what I'm reading here, a protagonist buys a mysterious book in an unknown language with an infinite number of pages, which of course sounds like Borges. But I guess the big question is, how do you translate that to the stage? I have written something Borgesian, I guess you would call it Borgesian, in New York many years ago. Well, this particular story... Nothing is easy, but it's laid out in a way that you're able as a writer, I'm able as a writer to fill in the stories that he reads, that the protagonist reads. The Book of Sand, for people that don't know what it is, I say it's like the red shoes. You know, you once you put the red shoes on, you dance until your death. It's like once you open the Book of Sand, you become obsessed with it and you can't sleep, you can't put it down. And when you turn a page, it's a completely different number and you can never go back to the page that you were just on. So it's, it's like, a, like a labyrinth in a book, which is very Borges. Because there are so many stories, he doesn't say what, what the stories are in the short story, but I did a lot of research on Borges' favorite writers and some of my favorite writers I wove together stories within the short story. How many characters are in the play? Two. One is the protagonist who buys the Book of Sand, and the other one is a merchant who sells it. They don't really play multiple roles. What they do is they inhabit the story. So he opens the book, and it could be anything from Edgar Allan Poe to The Furies to Ralph Ellison. The story is actually in the real book. It's two men, but I have a man and a, and a woman. And she sells him the book and she she kind of tries to get him addicted to the book. And once he opens it, it, it starts his, his obsession. 
on the website for Oakland Theater Project, I was trying to find out a little bit more about this play. The themes that are mentioned in the description are, how does one arrive at peace? How does that translate into the world? And what if one arriving at peace contradicts peace in the world? Is that from you? The artistic director, Michael Moran, and I, when he actually asked me to write a play for this season, we were brainstorming and you know, we, we went through a series of ideas like we always do. And I said something like, what about Jorge Luis Borges? And we kind of came to this both. Michael is much more eloquent. So these questions, this is Michael, you know, because as a playwright, I'm not so eloquent in describing my work. For me as a writer, the premise is that he keeps reading story after story after story. And it's a collage of all kinds of stories and eras, but the closer he gets to sort of going mad, it becomes a story about himself, his story in real life. And I think that everybody who reads the Book of Sand, that happens to. Now, I don't know if at the end he is truly at peace with himself. I think he he wants to be. The world at large aspect of, you know, the paragraph about the play I was really thinking about the pandemic and how how isolated we were and how some of us, you know, honestly went a little mad. And so for me, it was like, because the first line of, of the, the Book of Sand is, I live alone in an apartment on the fifth floor in Buenos Aires or something. You know, the first lines of, of mine are, I live alone on the whatever floor just down the street. So I'm setting it in Oakland. One of the questions I was going to get to concerned the pandemic and how you as an artist tries to understand what exactly we went through. Now, granted, the pandemic isn't over exactly. and it is over at the same time. Exactly. Right? Yes. You know, we're living in a kind of Schrodinger's universe <laughs> when it comes to the pandemic. But that brings me back to the question of was this play conceived during the lockdown then, or were you discussing it beforehand? We weren't in lockdown, but it, it, it was uh, conceived about a little over a year ago, like about a year and a half ago. And Michael actually gave me the challenge, which was a very big challenge, of writing a two-character play. Because most of my plays have, except for my solo shows, but most of my plays are like eight, eight people in a cast or like a minimum of five. The play is a rather short play, according to what I saw on the website, not more than an hour. How do you know when you're finished? How do you know when the play is complete? Are there no more questions? Is that what it is? To tell you the truth, for me, a play is never complete. If there's a production of To the Bone in another city, I'm still tweaking it. I am just that kind of writer. I, I don't actually think that a play is ever complete. <laughs> like I'm still actually in rehearsal. We had rehearsal this morning and I'm like, I was saying, can you guys both say this line at the same time? Can we take away the now? You know, can we switch lines? So I'm a bit of a tinkerer. So the play might be a little bit longer than an hour at this point. It might be because there are many elements of dance theater in this piece. Lisa Ramirez 
Your involvement with Oakland Theater Project, how did that come about? Because at this point, you've had a pretty distinguished career as a playwright and as an actor. And Oakland Theater Project is a fairly small company. So how did that come about? It was actually a great story. So I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Santa Cruz and Berkeley. My dad was a student in both places. In fact, the first play I ever saw was at Berkeley Rep when they were on College Avenue. But I moved to New York about 23 years ago because I always wanted to be in New York and um, started writing there. But my family's here, so from time to time I come back. A friend of mine, a beautiful actress named Saritha Akon, invited me to see her in a production of Waiting for Lefty that was in a warehouse, antique car warehouse in Oakland. And I wanted to support her. And I actually honestly wasn't expecting much because I am a, a bit of a waiting for lefty snob <laughs> because my ex-father-in-law was a member of the group theater. Clifford Odets actually wrote a part for him in Waiting for Lefty. His name was Wendell K. Phillips. I know that name. He was blacklisted during the McCarthy hearings and he came to the Bay Area and he was a, you know, he was a pretty prominent acting teacher and he was married to Gene Shelton. Uh, at a certain point. And I was married to his son. Yeah. So Clifford Odets wrote a part called Phillips, the actor. They ended up cutting it from the Broadway production because they found it that it had too many communist undertones. So I kind of went in like not expecting, you know, just going to see my friends play. And I walk in and it's in the round and there's all these wooden benches. And this woman starts singing gospel at the beginning of the the piece and the actors are all in the audience. And it was, it was, the direction was phenomenal. It was kind of like something that I would see at, in New York at St. Anne's warehouse or, you know, the Worcester group, or it was just, it was just so phenomenal. And so I really get really like completely inspired at plays, or I should say not that often. And so immediately I was like, who directed this? And it was Michael Moran. And I, I think I kind of scared him because I kind of I didn't tackle him, <laughs> but I, I I was like, you directed this. This is really inspiring. Can we meet for coffee? I'm a playwright and actor from New York. And oh, I sent him two of my plays and we met for coffee and he wanted to produce one of them. And then I tried to sell him the other one that I wanted them to do. And he wasn't sure about it. So I said, well, I'll, I'll organize a reading so you can hear it. This all happened within a week. And then I organized a reading and he then he really that that play was to the bone. And so they ended up producing that. And that's how you came to uh, Oakland Theater Project. How did you become the associate artistic director? Well, I've been there for about probably five years now. And I have a background in like many, many years ago, before I moved to New York, I was the literary director for Brava for Women in the Arts and a big reader. I've produced things. And when I was married to Chris Phillips, we had a theater in San Francisco together. So I've always been a bit of a, a pack, you know, animal. Like I love working with a group. In New York, I work, still work and worked many years with the Cherry Lane Theater. I lived above the Cherry Lane Theater for five years. So I really feel that Michael Moran is, he's a very rare 
human and director. And I would put him in the category of somebody like Joseph Papp. I think he's a visionary and he's very young. And it's kind of funny because I actually don't know how old he is. And he probably doesn't know how old I am either, but I'm definitely older than him. But we never have anything like in my day or when I was your age, you know, we just have a really great working relationship and we fight a lot and we laugh a lot and we work really hard. And um, I just think he inspires many people, including me. Lisa Ramirez, talk a little about some of your other work. You were in Streetcar, named Desire there, Oakland Theater Project, and you did a solo version of Elliot's The Wasteland. How did that come about? That is a great story. I was in New York and Oakland Theater Project's staff, which is myself, Michael, Colin, and at a time, John Wilkins. I actually called, or no, we were on a Zoom and we were trying to figure out how we could make work during the pandemic that was not Zoom. You know, we, everybody was Zoomed out. And so I said, hey, how about we do the wasteland in the parking lot and I'll be on mics and, and the sound can come through radios and so there will be no contact. People will be protected in their cars. They were kind of like, oh, I don't know, let me read it. And then Michael was like, yeah, let's do it. And I had seen Fiona Shaw perform the wasteland in New York, like maybe 24 years ago in this kind of dilapidated theater. And I felt that I was on the, at the age and had the experience to take it on. I've done a couple solo shows and it's probably one of the most difficult, exhilarating, challenging things I've ever done. And it was actually the first equity approved production at the beginning of the pandemic in California. So we were really proud of that. And how was working on Streetcar? Streetcar was amazing. It was directed by Emily Whelan, and I was Blanche and Saritha Akon, who invited me to Waiting for Lefty back then, was um, Stella. And it was in a, a warehouse that was completely covered in red velvet, and the entire set was suitcases. When you're creating a character, when you're working on a character with so much history as Blanche Dubois, do you pay attention to, say, Vivian Lee's version or any other version? How do you approach a character like that? You can't be an actor of my age that hasn't seen Vivian Lee's portrayal. And I've seen Streetcar a couple times. I saw one at a New York Theater Workshop, Ivan Van Hove's version in 2000. And I saw one, you know, about five years ago at BAM in New York. But I am really not the kind of actor that is influenced. Like I can actually watch another actor do Blanche or Martha and who's afraid of Virginia or whatever, you know, like, and not feel like I'm emulating them or, I mean, my Blanche was different. And Emily Whalen and I, we spent a lot of time together. We, it was sort of like theater in the early 90s. Like Emily and I would be talking until midnight, one in the morning about Blanche after rehearsal. We just had that kind of working relationship. So we created my version of Blanche, who the first scene, Blanche is, arrives in a black dress in our version in a black hat. I'm very grateful that I'm not really influenced by other people's performances of iconic roles because 
I feel like if you're the kind of actor that brings your whole person and you have a strong craft, which I, I think I do after all this time, I can be inspired by what they did and go, oh, that's really great. Wouldn't be my choice because I'm not Vivian Lee or Elizabeth Marvel, I think, played it. Lisa Ramirez, how did you get involved in acting and playwriting? Uh, I was actually studying psychology at San Francisco State, and I saw Dustin Hoffman in a film. Are you a longtime Berkeley resident? Yeah, I've been here a long oh, time. Well, so do you remember Hinks, the department store in Berkeley? I was at KPFA across the street. Oh, how great. Okay, so, but I used to go to the movies by myself. I was, so I was studying psychology. It was my first semester in college. I don't even know why I picked psychology other than people told me I was a good listener. So I saw this movie, I saw Kramer versus Kramer. I saw Dustin Hoffman's performance in Kramer versus Kramer. And I went into my mom's store. She was the manager of cosmetics at Hinks. She was a single mother. Just, she's an amazing woman. I was like crying and she goes, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I'm going to be an actor. Like there was something about Dustin Hoffman's performance and the sense of injustice that he felt that he emulated that I felt like, oh my God, that is something I can do. And so then my mom was like, okay, but you have to pay for your own acting classes. So I started studying with Jean Shelton when she was in Berkeley before she moved to San Francisco. And uh, I had really amazing teachers and I was very lucky. I got cast in a lot of plays and she suggested that I do as many plays as I could at San Francisco State to get what she called seasoned. And then I worked a lot and I worked at the Magic Theater. I worked at Marin Theater Company and then I moved to New York. Um, and then with playwriting, I started 15 years ago. I mean, I always say that I started on a dare, but it, now I think it's more of a, uh, a challenge by V, who is formerly known as Eve Ensler. I was nannying in New York and I, I met this woman who was fired for, you know, she'd been with this child since he was a baby. She was fired because he was older now and the parents came home and fired her because they said that the boy needed more stimulation. And she was from Trinidad and I met her on a park bench when I was nannying and Eve Ensler, who now goes by V called, happened to call me that night. She was kind of a mentor. And, um, I, I was my, I had what I call actor brain <laughs> at that time where I said, I, I can't handle this. I'm so depressing. All these women from other countries raising American children. And I told her the story and I said, I'm going to become a bartender or a waitress, like all my other actor friends. And she was like, no, no, there's a reason this woman told you her story, just keep listening, write, write these down and see if you can see what happens. And so that's what I did. And I swear to you, I really only meant to write one play. It was not like, oh, I'm a playwright. You know, now that's, that's my path. I really thought I'm going to do this. I have something to say. She produced the first version of it at a kind of a international festival. And then the Working Theater in New York produced it, gave it an off-Broadway run. Coleman Domingo directed it. It did really well. And then I, I did it in North Carolina, in Ireland, and then at Oakland Theater Project. But then Working Theater actually asked me if I had anything else that I wanted to write. 
I had read an article about the Central American population in upstate New York who worked in poultry plants and egg processing plants. I think I had seen Of Mice and Men on Broadway, and at intermission, I was outside, and all these like Latino men walked by who were, had clearly been working all day. And then I went back inside and I was like, that's who should be on this stage doing of mice and men in this day. So I said to Mark, well, <laughs> I don't even know. I, it's like beginners. I don't even know what to call it. Like the, when, when you're beginning something, you can just throw all caution to the wind. So I said, I don't know. I think I'd like to take a crack at the great American play. And he goes, tell me more. And I was like, well, I, I would like to write like the Central American female version of something like Of Mice and Men, like a factory play. And so they commissioned me to write write it. And uh, I went upstate and I interviewed a lot of women. And I am half Central American. My father's from El Salvador. So then that turned into my first big play. Then I just kept getting commissioned in, at different places until about two years ago, well, actually until this year, every play that I wrote, I have been saying, this is my last play, <laughs> but now I've realized, no, I'm going to write more plays. I don't, I don't know why I keep saying it's my last play. I mean, it's hard to write plays. Well, it's hard to write any fiction of any sort. That's right. And there's a lot of work. And then there's work with other people. It's not like writing a novel. Yeah. Well, that's why I like working with the same people because, I mean, I've worked in off-Broadway and regional productions with people that you meet at the first rehearsal, but there's something really satisfying for me about working with a company. Like every play that I've written for Oakland Theater Project, uh, we have cast it before I have written it. And I interview all of the actors and I pull aspects of their life and weave them into the thread of you know, like I adapted Maxine Gorky's The Lower Depths. I was 18 actors of company members of at Oakland Theater Project, and I interviewed all of them. And every character had a little piece of something that they had told me. And I did the same thing with St. Joan, burn, burn, burn. And I have done the same thing with Book of Sand. I was thinking that's really strange because, of course, later on, other actors play these roles. But then I was thinking that's exactly how Chorus Line was created. Oh, really? By the original cast until suddenly things were created. So the characters in a Chorus Line are based on the people who first performed each uh, of the roles. That's cool. Also, I think that old play, Hatful of Rain was created at the Actors Studio in New York like that. And then Joe Pintaro wrote a play called Raft of the Medusa, which was an AIDS play during the, the AIDS epidemic. He actually had writer's block and he was in a, a laundromat and he saw this sign that said, a writer needed to write a play for this AIDS support group. And so he actually ended up going to the support group and writing the play for this group None of them survived by the time it was time to put it up. You know, it was before the, the cocktail or any of the medications. So that was based on real life also. You know, we actually did it at our theater in San Francisco, I think in 93, maybe. What theater was that? Actors Theater of San Francisco. And where was it? On Sutter Street between Mason and Powell. I wonder if that's the same theater where um, 
custom made is now. It is. It is. In the dressing rooms, I actually did the soundproofing myself <laughs> in the dressing room. I did a reading of there a couple of years ago and I was like, I put this stuff up here, you know, like. Lisa Ramirez, a couple of more general questions about theater since I have you here. How do you view theater as opposed to live theater, as opposed to, say, film or even these days, long form television? I love all three forms. Uh, I think theater, when it's done well, there is nothing like it. It is a communal experience. You know, it's very tangible. The, the actors are right in front of you and everybody is transported into this imaginary world. And they're all, in a way, we're all forming our own images as we're watching things or associations where film and TV, which I'm very, very affected by. I mean, it's because of Dustin Hoffman that I even you know, I mean, I'm sure that if I saw that movie and I lived in L.A., I would have ended up in the film or TV. But I happened to be in a town that was more theater than that. Film and TV, for me, are almost like a, a dream state. You know, you get taken away almost in a dream. So theater is more immediate. As an actor, You have it's, it's more rigorous. I mean, I love acting. I'm the kind of actor that could do a play for a year. I love repetition. <laughs> maybe there's, maybe I have some kind of, I don't know. Well, there's an interactive thing going on on stage that's different every single night. Yes. And when I talk to actors, that's what draws them because it's immediate, it's there, and every night it's going to change on some level. Even people who've done plays. I talked to a guy who was in like the Lion King for 10 years wow. and every night was different. Yeah. Every night was different. And you can't have that in television or film. No, no. According to IMDb, you've only done a couple of things. You were in a short subject called Kabul. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I just started doing film like a few years ago. I've never really had any interest in it because I was always working in the theater and somebody asked me to do a part in this short film and that was really fun. And then I started, you know, auditioning for a couple of TV things and I got a couple things and now I'm actually writing for TV. What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm working on something that I've created and I'm working with somebody in Los Angeles on two things that they've written, but I can't really say what they are. Are they television miniseries, film? <laughs> That's well, one of them is, and the other one is a is a series, a regular series. Nothing has been signed yet, so I don't want to jinx it. A lot of my friends who are playwrights and directors are in LA now, and so I'm gonna start working there. I actually this year I was one of the playwrights in residence at uh, Center Theater Group in Los Angeles. I worked for a whole year with nine other writers, all women, led by Luis Alfaro, who I'm sure you know from the Magic Theater and other places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He yeah. And he he led the group, and we just had a big festival in L.A. Uh, about a month ago with all 10 plays, and that was pretty exciting. Do you see yourself pursuing more of a writing career than, say, being in a writer's room as opposed to being in front of the camera? No, they're equal. I love them equally. How about directing? Michael and I have talked a lot about that because when Michael and I worked together, especially like on St. Joan, 
He directed it, but I did some acting coaching with some of because the, they were young actors. None of them had done more than two two nights of a performance ever. I think I'm a great acting coach. I think maybe when I'm 80, I could maybe direct theater. I've always thought that I would be a good director. Michael thinks I would be a good director. Other people have told me. But to be honest, I lose interest. Like I, <laughs> you know, during tech, you have to be there for 10 hours and then the director has to stay till midnight talking to all the tech people. And I, I feel like being a director is more like being a parent and being an actor is like, you can be anything basically. And being a writer, you know, you can get up and go for a walk, take a break and then come back to it. You know, as long as you have a deadline, you'll get it done. I might direct film or, or TV. I'm not sure. Acting, to be honest, is my first love. You know, I was so grateful to be a writer during the pandemic because I had a few commissions. So I, I had money, you know, coming in and I actually felt very powerless being an actor for hire. You know, I loved working with companies uh, or having a home base, but there is something about being both a playwright and an actor that makes me feel more in control of my destiny. You know, there might be years where all I do is write and there might be years where all I do is act, but I don't think I could ever give one of them up. Like if somebody said you have to choose, I would say no. <laughs> as an artist, as a playwright, and as an actor, and knowing that we're on the cusp of possible fascism here, how does that tie into your view of theater? And in particular, how does theater tie into activism? For me, theater and activism have always been hand in hand. You know, Exit Cuckoo was about domestic workers uh, to the bone was about immigration and, you know, unfair working conditions. Down here below, the Gorky adaptation was about homelessness in Oakland. So for me, and maybe it's because my father-in-law was part of the group theater, you know, I've never wanted to, to do plays, both acting or writing, that didn't have some sort of, you know, social commentary or the goal for me has always been been that somebody will leave the theater thinking, wow, I didn't even know, look at that person with a stroller. Now I see that she, she has a life and a family. And for me, they've always been tied together. I performed Exacucu outside of the mayor's office in New York when we were trying to pass the Bill of Rights, you know, the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. And most of the people that I respect, you know, as, as artists always have an activist kind of bent to their work. You know, this Book of Sand is really not, it's not a typical play of mine, but it was very fun to write. In terms of America at a fascist crossroad, I mean, polemics doesn't work unless you're Brecht, I guess. Yes. I love Brecht. Yeah. You know, I go back and forth between what a play can do, being polemical and getting people to take action, or on the other hand, just asking questions that may or may not be answered. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I'm not crazy about didactic political theater. For me, it's more of a like it's more of a story. Like I believe that Death of a Salesman is political theater. It's about this man, the working class. It's about an injustice of a of a different age, you know, or being aged out. 
you know, I, I don't like to just say, this is what I think, bye. Like I do like to accompany it with uh, post-show discussions and having people like experts in the field or full-time activists come in and dialogue, you know, elongate the discussion. I've had artistic directors tell me that if when you're walking out of a theater, the conversation continues for as long as possible, then no matter what people thought of the play, on some level, it's a success. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I don't really think of in terms of success, but I think if you're an artistic director, so since I'm only an associate artistic director, I don't have to think about that. But I, I think that it, I think there's some truth to that. Lisa Ramirez, now Book of Sand is going to be playing at Oakland Theater Project. How many plays do you have in various stages at this point? I'm actually up to date, although I have three commissions starting in 2023 until 2025. I haven't even signed the contracts yet, but I have two that two grants that have been awarded to me and Oakland Theater Project for 23 and 25. And then I have another commission in Philadelphia coming up. I mean, I think it's really funny. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty current. I'm pretty current. The only play that I've written that hasn't been produced is the one that they just did a reading of at Center Theater Group at the Kirk Douglas Theater. And what about uh, acting? Michael is trying to get me... <laughs> To, I was going to take a year off, but Michael Michael always tempts me back with these great roles. So I may be doing a show at Oakland Theater Project next year. But I am working on these TV things, so I I was going to try to focus on that for like a year or two. You've been listening to an interview with Lisa Ramirez who is an actor and playwright. The Book of Sand, her play inspired by Borges, runs the 11th of November through December 4th, and there's a live stream on November 26th. For more information, you can go to oaklandtheaterproject.org, and theater is spelled T-H-E-A-T-E-R. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>